early spring nights across eastern North America bring forth an amazing but silent nocturnal migration. Large, brightly colored salamanders crawl out of their burrows and journey over hills, across roads, and through streams to reach very special ponds known as vernal pools. Vernal pools may not hold water year-round, but this means they're usually fishless and can act as safe nurseries for amphibians and insects to start their lives. Either by instinct or memory, these shallow waters are known to this spotted salamander, because this is where she was born. And like many generations before, this is where she will return to lay her eggs. And she isn't alone. Hundreds of spotted salamanders move silently across the forest floor from all over to reach this pool. Once in the water, the salamanders begin a remarkably elegant courtship dance. listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi everyone and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 73 and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. Well, it's been three long weeks since the last episode release and uh, I want to apologize for the delay. I had anticipated only a slight hiccup of a few days uh, when I converted uh, our spare bedroom into my new office and studio space. But at the end of all that, I came down with a wicked respiratory infection that took more than a week to shake off. It's going around, folks, and uh, I hope you all don't get it. So when I got back to working on the episodes, I recorded some intros and outros, and they sounded pretty rough. So I decided to give my voice a couple more days, and uh, things seemed better this time around. And at any rate, uh, I think the kink is out of the pipeline, and the show's schedule will return to some semblance of normalcy. Oh, and I'm only a few weeks away from the end of my consulting work, and so by Christmas I will be back in the ranks of the unemployed with more free time, and of course, now I remember why I retired in the first place. And it occurred to me, while I was worrying about all of these delays, that if you're new to the show, or if you're listening to this in the year 2025, or if you're like Ian Kanda and refuse to listen to the episodes out of order, uh, well, you know, maybe the delay issues are no big deal. Uh, so if you happen to run into me in 2025, tell 2025 me that 2022 me says hello. Now, before we get to this week's episode, uh, I want to say thank you to all the show's patrons. I'm very grateful for everyone's contributions, and it does keep the show rolling along. And if you're out there listening and you would like to kick in a few bucks to help out, it's really easy to do. And I'll tell you all about it at the end of the show. Our guest this week is Zach Trulock. Uh, who you heard in the teaser that started the show. Zach is an Indiana native who is currently doing some uh, very important conservation work in Florida. And he's a young fella, uh, but he's been involved with a number of very cool herb conservation projects over the past few years. And uh, we're going to talk about all of that and much, much more. So let's get to that interview with Zach Trulock. Zach Trulock, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Um, been wanting to get you on the show for a little bit. I've been a, a busy dude and uh, finally finally got you nailed down and uh, I'm glad, glad to have you. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to be here. So the last time I saw you, we were participating in a Hellbender release in Indiana. Yes, indeed. That was, that was a fun day. <laughs> It was, and uh, captured some of that for uh, one of the one of the shows, uh, one of the episodes for the show. Um, it was very a very fun day, and very um, you know I'm sure and you you agree it it feels very um, 
uh, like you're doing something important, right? Yes, yes. It's it's very cool to to be able to put them out and uh, yeah, release a endangered species and repatriate them and back into their home uh, environment. That's so it's very cool and very rewarding work. Cool. And uh, I'm going to ask you a little bit about yourself. I, uh, you're, uh, are you an Indiana uh, native? I am. Yes, I'm from Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> and uh, where did you get your education at? I uh, got my undergrad degree uh, in wildlife at Purdue uh, University. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, and from there, you've gone on and done field work in a number of places. So. Uh, I think I, I want to kind of step through some of the cool things that you have done. Uh, but right now, uh, you're, you're not in Indiana anymore. No. Where, where are you? Not currently, yeah. So I just saw you this summer uh, when I was in Indiana working with the Hellbenders. Uh, but just as of a couple of weeks ago, I moved down to Florida uh, to work with reticulated flatwood salamanders on Eglin Air Force Base. Now that's pretty awesome. You're just you're just jetting. Whenever there's an animal in trouble, you just go. Right? <laughs> you just go there, and uh, here I am. Let's get let's get cracking. Okay. I, I I got your number now. Uh, well, that's very cool. But why don't we start with the beginning? What was your first field tech job? My first, uh, well, I'll say when I graduated, um, I worked uh, with timber rattlesnakes in southern Ohio which of course was a very cool and very um, exciting project to work on. Uh, We were tracking them via radio telemetry and it's just, it's still probably my favorite job. No offense to (laughs) my current job or any others, but um, it's, it's such a unique and special experience to be able to follow an animal throughout um, its active season. And you really, you get to know them. You, you, you know, you follow them and, Oh, classic Stanley sitting in the clear cut or uh, what have you. And so we, we tracked about 25 snakes um, and I was there um, probably eight or nine months. Um, And so that was, it was a lot of fun. So every day you're out there. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Every day track every snake, um, two to three times a week and just kind of see what they're up to, what kind of habitat they're using, what they're doing, how they're looking, all that fun stuff. Okay. And so by tracking, we're talking about animals that have been, uh, uh, that have a uh, radio receiver or a radio transmitter, excuse me, implanted Mm -hmm. and then turned back loose and Yes, indeed. Yeah, we we took our snakes. So this was Southern Ohio. So we took them to the Columbus Zoo and got them fitted with radio transmitters. And then, yeah, we would follow them around. Yeah, you can't put a collar on those things. (laughs) Take it inside. Exactly. Yeah. How many snakes were part of the project? That is a good question. Um, I would probably have to ask Andrew Hoffman, who I worked for. He was doing his Ph.D., looking at um, the various effects of forest management practices on the timber rattlesnakes. Um, Ah. When I was there, we were tracking uh, between 25 and 30 snakes, but I I think it was usually right about at at 25. Um, And every snake we just encountered, we would, you know, just kind of process and um, take some other just like, you know, measurements and health and genetic samples and that sort of thing. But we didn't, didn't track every snake we came across. Um, otherwise that would just get, uh, unbearable because <laughs> we did, did see a lot of snakes. Yeah. You can only do so much, um, in a, uh, studious manner, I guess, right? You can, yeah, only, exactly. You, you got to take data every day, right? Every day. Yeah. It, it's you, Using the you know radio receiver, you're walking around trying you know you, you try to find uh, like you you named this uh, talked about a snake named Stanley. So today, maybe Stanley is the first snake you're going for this morning. So you have to set the receiver for Stanley's frequency and then uh, see if you can track him down. Exactly. Yeah, and it's uh, it can very easily you can very easily get overwhelmed, especially you know at certain times of the year. So as you, you know, and probably a lot of your audience knows and 
late summer timber rattlesnakes the males move around a lot looking for females and uh there's were a couple weeks there where uh some big males just kind of disappeared on us and you have to go around and try and try and you know try and figure out okay he was here last two days ago where might he have moved in that time and and uh sometimes it can surprise you they can they can move quite a ways yeah and so every time you find stanley you've got to uh record his location and uh uh the surroundings and what he was doing correct yeah yeah exactly um yeah we took we took pictures even of where the snakes were uh, to record if they were hunting or not um the canopy cover in the area the body temperature of the snake as compared to the soil right nearby um and yeah, GPS coordinates, of course. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Um, yeah, well, that's that's quite a bit when you consider the number of snakes you're working with. So it's a full day. Yeah, yeah, it 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 very much was, and there were a lot of long days, and it's it's a lot of fun, but it's also can be a lot when you're you know in the middle of a clear cut trying to find <laughs> a snake and not <laughs> knowing where you can step and not and knowing that it should be within the foot of your boots, but you don't see it and <laughs> covered in seed I, ticks. I have had the, uh, I've had oh, the ticks too. <laughs> I've had the privilege of, of assisting Greg Stevens doing the, the very thing you're doing for uh, a short time. Oh gosh. Back in 2007, I think it was oh, awesome. but I had, just for a while. I had a, the uh, opportunity to follow him around while he, while he radio tracked, his uh his subjects and i you know got to learn how to how to run a receiver and you know you know that kind of stuff mm -hmm. all the the cool things about that and just get an insight on and this is in indiana so it's indiana uh, timber rattlesnakes but uh but i got an, some insight on timber rattlesnakes and um and i'm sure you uh, and this is sort of a leading question for you but uh they don't always do what you expect them to, and they don't always. They're not always in places where you might think they should. They are. They 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 show up in all kinds of different places. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think working with them and at that job was kind of the first one of the first times I realized that, you know, when we go out and look for snakes, we you know we look in these specific areas at these specific times, but when we do that and even when we find them, we're really only seeing a small part of what they do and how they use the landscape. They really, you know, I would track snakes, you know, and complete closed canopy next to a bottomland stream. And, uh, you know, not, I mean, you probably wouldn't go out there to look for a timber rattlesnake if you just wanted to see one, but, but they, they use those habitats and, uh, yeah, they, they, don't really do the things you quite expect, as you said. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was struck by um, one of the one of the really big ones that we found was um, you know on on a northern slope, very wet slope, ferny hillside, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know a lot of moisture there. Uh, but I guess you know there's also a lot of food you know food there too. There's rodents there and squirrels and. Whatnot. It's just as uh, uh, you know, everybody you know in a herp in a herping world. It's like, well, you know, you go to the sunny, southern facing slope, and that's where you're going to find these guys because they like to bask. But yep. you know, they like to eat as much as they like to bask too. So they're going to go to places where either the food is or where the, the the mates are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and a lot of times they use those um, you know wetter kind of you know north facing slopes or bottomlands to to shed. And, uh, so even though, you know, you might not think to go look for rattlesnakes on a North facing slope, I mean, that could very well be part of their ecology in that area to, to go there to shed or to hunt or, or what, you know, whatever they might need. Yeah. Uh, and maybe too, uh, I, you know, you also see different behaviors from the snakes, right? The snakes are, uh, the, like you said, the males are, uh, it's hard to think of them running around. <laughs> Snakes, the, the males are frantically looking for females. So they're, they're um, moving in, a, they could be moving in, in enormous uh, distances in order to 
either trail a female or maybe they're searching for one, hoping to come across, you know, a pheromone trail or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I will say the, I've never seen a timber rattlesnake move faster than the one that I saw that lost a, um, a fight with another male <laughs> during the oh, breeding really? season. Um, yeah, it's, it, they can actually move faster than you might think, uh, when they are uh, kicked out of their, territory by a bigger male, I, I suppose. <laughs> wow. So you got to see some, some combat or I, some? Yes. Uh, yes. I was lucky enough. Um, so I was tracking one of our study snakes. Uh, his name is Cricket. Um, and uh, it was breeding season. He had moved a lot and uh, I was tracking him and I came across, I knew he was nearby and then I saw a timber rattlesnake, but I knew it wasn't him. And, uh, so I thought, okay, um, you know, maybe, you know, it was another male snake. Um, so I thought maybe they'd been fighting in the area. So I carefully looked around and I eventually found Cricket and Cricket found the other male as well. And uh, they started uh, fighting. And uh, if, um, I, I mean, I know you're familiar with uh, timber rattlesnake combat, but for those who might not be, they will kind of rear up uh, their heads and kind of intertwine and try to pin each other. And um, the winner is the one that pins the other um, or just expends uh, the one that runs out of energy first is the loser basically. Um, ah, okay. So yeah, they, I saw them doing that and that, that was, that was really incredible. It was almost like I wasn't there. They were a little bit, you know, they reacted to me a little bit. Uh, the other male was rattling at me, but, they pretty much just fought each other and focused on each other. And I got to follow them around, you know, from a distance and kind of film the whole thing and, and watch. And uh, very sadly, cricket lost. <laughs> you know, of course, yeah. I was rooting for the one snake that I knew, but cricket lost. Mm -hmm. And uh, he he fled the scene and <laughs> moved moved away quite quickly. But he did breed that year. He, he found another female. So that was good. Oh, so you must have witnessed uh, him at least cuddling up with another with a female. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think I think it was on the opposite side of the ravine. I initially found him in. He was with another female and stayed with her for about a week. Um, oh wow! So, okay. Yeah, that was really cool so, to see. The the males one one male will try to top the other one, right, and then push them down, and right. Yes. Yep. They, they, so they try to use their height, their ability to, to go up and their weight, their mass to sort of push the other one down. But I think what I'm really interested in is how does the losing snake, you know, the, like you say, the losing snake just takes off. It's like there's a, some point in this whole contest where they clearly realize not only that they're not, they, that they've lost, but they they got to get the heck out of there, which is which is this seems a little bit of a an odd behavior, but that they do it right. They just take off. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's really interesting to see, and like I said, it's the fastest I've seen a timber snake move. Um, but um, I I believe I have video of it. Um, the the other males just kind of uh, you know they're intertwined, and it's kind of like he's thrashing Cricket's head against the ground, and I believe he did that three or four times. And uh, hmm. you, you can kind of clearly see that Cricket, the losing male, is getting fatigued. And uh, what I think happened is that they had been fighting before I had even arrived. And uh, it's even possible that Cricket had won a bout and then the other male had fled when I came upon the scene. I don't, I don't know for sure, of course. Um, okay. But yeah, when I, what I, from what I saw, that's kind of what happened is that the the losing snake just kind of got thrashed against the ground. And, um, after that happened a couple times, he just, um, fled the scene. <laughs> I had a video of that as well. well. These males, uh, they burn a lot of calories for the, the opportunity to reproduce. Yeah. Yeah. I am sure that they do indeed. Just to back this up before I, go any further how how did you start how did you get your start in uh, what made you think oh, i need to go to school and and uh, spend uh, you know my life working with herbs where did this start for you 
Yeah, so pretty much as long as I can remember, I've been interested in animals, wildlife, you know. Um, and when I was a kid, I was actually really interested in marine biology. But of course, uh, growing up in landlocked Indiana, there was not a lot of opportunity for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I was very fortunate enough to have uh, very supportive parents that were just great and really supported my interests. And they would take me, especially my mom, she would take me to the local creeks around and I would, you know, catch crayfish and minnows. And from there, I kind of branched out into, you know, getting interested in the bullfrogs and the water snakes that I would also see along the creek. And uh, that kind of spiraled into more of an interest in herpetology. Okay. Some people know early on what they want to do. Some people figure it out in high school or even grade school, but some people it takes a, you know, it takes a college education to, to sort of work those things out and figure out, well, this is what I yeah. like to do. And these are what my strengths are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I think by the time I was in high school, I, I knew that I wanted to do something where I could be outside working with animals. And, uh, you know, I may not have known exactly what that might look like, but, um, I thought that I, I wanted to go to college and get a degree involving animals. Um, gotcha. And uh, at first I, I looked into a, or I enrolled in the biology program. I was going to get a biology degree and um, I transitioned from there to wildlife because that was more of a pre-med or pre-vet track um, and a lot of microbiology. Um, and so I, okay. I didn't quite realize that, the wildlife or wildlife biology field um, existed until my sec, uh, my first semester. So, so then I transitioned there and that was just the, the perfect fit. Gotcha. And you are not the only person, you're not the first person I, I've talked to. <laughs> done the same thing. Uh -huh. So that doesn't surprise yeah, me. <laughs> you, yeah. You can't put a tracking collar on a paramecium buddy. <laughs> yeah. That would be tough. <laughs> And so then the, uh, the timber rattlesnake, uh, gig. And then after that, or did you go to hellbenders after that or? No. So after, well, I guess sort of, um, but after that, I, I had known, um, Nate Ingbrecht, the Indiana state herpetologist. And, uh, yes. he reached out to me saying that he was interested in hiring a technician for some herp work and also some mammal work. And, uh, I, I did that for about a year and a half and uh, got to do all sorts of fun stuff, working with crawfish frogs. Um, Ooh. Yeah, general herp surveys and, and doing a little bit of hellbender surveys uh, there when I worked for the DNR. And, of, and uh, Allegheny wood rat surveys and uh, some raccoon trapping. And, and so, yeah, that was a fun time as well. Mammals. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. I, I definitely, you know, I'm obviously a herp guy more <laughs> than a mammal guy, but, but, uh, the mammal stuff was cool as well. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, you know, thinking about my buddy, Nick Bergmeier, who for a time became a bat guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah. So it happens, right? It happens to the best of us. <laughs> wow. Okay. So then, then, uh, from there you turn, you, did you go into hellbender more of a hellbender position from there? Or? Uh, not quite. <laughs> so I, I've jumped around a little bit. Um, so from there, okay. I went to New Mexico, um, where I worked on uh, Kirtland or Kirkland. I think it's Kirtland. Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque. Um, we were looking at Western Massasauga rattlesnakes, but I also Ooh. Yeah, that was cool. But I also just operated a drift fence um, and we, you know, saw all the resident uh, snakes and reptiles there. Um, so that was neat. And then from there, I went to Florida where I worked with the frosted flatwood salamanders uh, with FWC and Pearson Hill, who I think you know. Yes. And um, yeah. shout out to Pearson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pearson's a good guy. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, very cool project. Um, I, I happened to, uh, we had friends in Tallahassee and, you know, I, I reached out to him many years ago and like, Hey, is there anything? Can I, can I hang out or go herping with you or something? And he was very kind and, 
helped me uh, do a couple things. But he he also, uh, I actually got to find a, a frostwood flatwood salamander, or he was there when we rolled a log and there was one under a log, uh, well past the time when they should have been there. So it was ex- very exciting for me to see one in the you know where where it lives and sort of get a early look at what's what was going on with those things. So. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm sure even more so and as years go by you appreciate how how rare and special that that was for you to see one in the wild yes uh i do i mean i knew it then but now i'm like oh that was oh man right that was uh really uh, um something else to to see that thing so yeah yeah absolutely uh, and what it was he had a couple that he was taking data on he had taken data on and it was time you know you have to go back and so, you know, we put putting them back and then we, we found this other one. So, Oh, awesome. So, yeah. 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 That was, that was very cool. So. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Shout out to Pearson for that. So you got to work with those uh, and um, were you monitoring them and uh, what were you doing with uh, the flatwoods? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we were uh, monitoring a breeding wetland um, through the use of a drift fence, which I think I mentioned, but just in case people aren't familiar, it's, you put up uh, fence panels, um, in this case, like aluminum or, or tin siding. Um, and the basic premise is animals come to the fence because they're trying to get into the wetland or out of the wetland. And they hit the fence and they travel along it looking for a way out until they go into a trap. And so we did that uh, for flatwood salamanders uh, during the fall breeding season. And during the spring as well to get the the young, the metamorphs that were emerging from the pond and dispersing on the landscape. And when you when you say they uh, fall into a trap, we're talking like a bucket or something or some kind of container in the ground, right? Yeah, that's that's a common way. In this case, actually, they were just kind of like mesh um, traps against the fence. So they would with a funnel. Um, so they would walk along the fence and then walk up the funnel and then fall from the funnel into the, the mesh trap. I see. Okay. Yeah. So we, we did that and we were also doing uh, head starting. So we were collecting eggs from the wild, bringing them into captivity. Uh, we raised them in these, um, what are called mesocosms, which basically is a, a miniaturized, um, attempt at a pond or wetland ecosystem. So, you know, it's like, like a cattle watering tank. Um, and we put grasses and leaves in there and, uh, Daphnia plankton things for baby salamanders to eat. And then we, we put the salamander eggs in there and they hatch and, uh, they could live in there for a few months until they start to metamorphose. And then we release them back in the wild. And the idea is that by doing that, you, dramatically increase the survival rates um, because f- frosted flatwood salamanders are one of those species where they're, they are really on the brink of extinction and it's very possible that they could go extinct within m- my lifetime. And uh, so that was an attempt to, you know, cut out any, because they've declined so much, you really want to cut out any, any bust years or any, you know, any years where, for example, the ponds don't have water at the right times or they dry too early, um, which unfortunately is happening more and more. And so we're just trying to, to make sure that every year they have some amount of successful reproduction and that the young have a survival rate that is above what they would normally get in the wild. And then we return them so, on the landscape. Yeah. So we're, we're past the point of managing these creatures with a light touch yeah very much so unfortunately we're at the point where we're throwing all the life preservers overboard yes uh in you know to save this this species and we should talk about the species a little bit too though for uh, for those that aren't familiar with the frosted flatwood salamander which is uh uh an ambistomote ambistomatid salamander right mm-hmm. it's it's one of the uh the lunged salamanders, like our tiger salamander or spotted salamander, that kind of thing. So that's that same group. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're, um, I'd say they're roughly the size of a smallmouth salamander. If uh, some of your audience is familiar with them, um, 
they they are really adapted to these fire adapted ecosystems. So the the longleaf pine flatwoods, as you know, where they get their name, and uh, it used to be all over the southeast. And I think there's maybe I think the figure is usually three percent or even less than three percent of the original longleaf pine um, ecosystem remaining. Um, so obviously a lot of just habitat loss. And then on top of that, even on the protected areas like the Apalachicola National Forest, the, the land management over the past few decades or really probably even the past century has been one that is very, very much in contrast to the ecology the area would have naturally experienced. So, like I said, it's fire adapted, and historically there would have been lightning strikes in late spring, early summer that cause wildfires. And at that time of year, um, these isolated wetlands that the salamanders use are dry because, um, you know, they're like a vernal pool ecosystem. Um, they dry, you know, seasonally. And uh, the fire would have moved through the pond and burned out the pond and cleared um, any woody vegetation or just dead plant material. And um, that really opens up the area for all these uh, specialized plants to colonize. And uh, these plants are really what the, the salamanders like and really need to lay their eggs in and what the larvae live in when they hatch. And so... Okay, what, what, what kind of plants are we talking uh, so the, he, I don't know as many of them, but I know area colon is one of them. It's kind of a, a fluffy looking grass, um, uh, really grass, they're grasses. Um, so are they grasses that are sort of adapted to a dry and a wet and then dry cycle and, you know, yes. Yeah. They're kind of like, um, I guess they're probably emergent grasses, but I think they can live underwater for, for a large, large amount of time, but. Yeah, they so so the the fire helps to keep the the wetlands or these temporary wetlands from uh, disappearing from succession, right? So the fire comes in and burns out all the woody plants that would otherwise take hold, and then reduce the wetland over time. Exactly, and uh, they the fire, um, yeah, it clears out the woody and the the people call it duff or like the organic material. And so um, flatwood salamanders are kind of weird in that they don't, unlike, you know, say marbled salamanders, the are close relative that also lays eggs on land, uh, the flatwood salamanders don't have a protective membrane to keep them from drying out. So what they do is they lay them under these plants uh, on pure mineral soil. And so the, the plants kind of keep this layer of moist air that keeps the eggs from drying out. Um, and so that's what oh. the, the plants are really important for. And then, you know, I normally, um, a winter cold front would bring in the rain and the pond levels would rise inundating the eggs and they hatch and go about the, the rest of their life cycle. Um, but that's unfortunately less and less common, probably due to climate change. Um, it seems to be shifting weather patterns where the, the rain isn't arriving at the right times and not staying for the correct amount of time for salamanders. Okay. And then you also, uh, obviously the lack of habitat, uh, probably a lot of mismanagement of the habitat because typically people are doing conservation management or doing so for game animals that the game animal thing always intrudes into, into that. And then they also have the feral hog problem. That's also a, an issue. Yes. Sorry. I meant to mention this. Um, but yeah, so they, so that's the, the ecology of, you know, how the longleaf pine ecosystem has been for millions of years, but in the past century, um, the land management, you know, Smokey the bear, um, and all that kind of yeah. made eat fire a bad thing. And so fire was, excluded from the landscape and that really allowed all these woody plants trees to take off and they shade out the understory and kind of take out those the smaller grasses and things and that um, eliminates the habitat for the the flowered salamander and even on 
uh, um, even on top of that, um, you know, when, when the fire did get put back in the landscape, it's for a, a wildfire risk reduction, uh, or timber management is the primary purpose. And so what they normally would do is burn, um, during the, the dormant season, during late winter or very early spring. Um, and that's also because of the, the complications and issues with, you know, doing prescribed fire. Um, you know, you need certain weather conditions to make sure that it doesn't spread beyond your, your management goals and, and such. Um, but so what that means is that a lot of these, um, a lot of this land management, uh, the fires happen when there's water in the ponds in late winter. And so then obviously the pond is excluded from the beneficial um, effects of the fire um, getting into the wetland. Okay. And so the, what that means is that all the woody plants take off and uh, you don't get the, over time, the nice grasses, the salamanders like disappear and they turn into these really dense thickets of woody vegetation. I see. So how does it how did it feel uh, working on this project with these um, imperiled salamanders? It was um, I felt very fortunate, of course. Um, yeah, it felt felt very it was very rewarding work to to be able to try and um, you know save these salamanders um, really from the brink of extinction because, like I said, the it's very possible they they could go extinct within our lifetimes and. Uh, so yeah, that's, I think, especially when I was, um, dip netting a pond to get all of the salamander larvae out because the pond was drying too early. Um, that was one of the most rewarding things I, I felt like I, I was, I just felt, it felt very rewarding to do that to, you know, you know, yeah. these salamanders are critically imperiled and, and we're just trying to to have as many of them back on the landscape and surviving as, as possible. So, so it was very cool and very special work. Yeah. So uh, let me ask, uh, are there assurance colonies uh, of, of flatwood salamanders at, at the moment? There are. Um, so, and actually I believe it was uh, in the mid two thousands, um, the flatwood salamander was split. And so there's two species now. Um, so like I mentioned, right. I was working with the frosted flatwood salamander initially, and there is one captive assurance colony of frosted flatwood salamanders, which is at the amphibian foundation in Atlanta. And, um, okay. they have been working on captive breeding and just last year experienced success with that. And they got some fertilized eggs. So that's, that's encouraging. And I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on it later, but, um, I have a, a YouTube video that really goes kind of in depth with the situation of the fl frosted flatwood salamander and uh, all the conservation efforts. Um, and I can be sure to, to link that to you if, if people are interested. Yes. Yes, definitely. I want to put that link in the show notes. So I've seen that. I, I, uh, I couldn't remember if I saw it on YouTube or where I saw it, but it was very interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's, it was a lot of hours I put on that. <laughs> Okay. And now you're, you're back in Florida and you're working with the other, the frost, not the frosted. What is the other? Uh, uh, reticulated. Yes. The reticulated <laughs> flatwood salamander, which is uh ambistoma bishopi, right? Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the, the flat, the flatwood salamander that occurs west of the Apalachicola. Apalachicola river. Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. I'm, coming down and seeing, seeing the other species and, and working with them. And they, they are also, even though, you know, they're considered different species, it's, it's basically the same situation. They're, they're functionally identical ecologically. So, so the same kind same. of issues, you know, fire suppression and, and all that. Okay. So, and really no difference here. And hopefully there's some assurance colonies for this species as well. There are, I think the San Antonio Zoo is the only place that has them. And I think they have captive bred them before. Okay. Um, yeah. And you're doing the same sort of work with these? Yes. Um, yeah, with a little bit more of a, a habitat restoration focus, which has uh, 
been been fun and interesting. So we're we're out uh, actually chainsawing you know the trees and woody vegetation out of the wetlands and and piling it up so it can eventually be burned away. So it's it's tough work, but it's <clears throat> excuse me, it's also very rewarding. Yeah, it's a thankless job, and and you know this as well as I do, and I bring this up on the show a lot of times that, that people just have no idea how many people are out there toiling to keep, you know, species like the flatwood salamander or you name it. There's just people out there toiling to, to keep these things alive. And they're, you know, cutting things down and burning things and digging holes and uh, just maintaining habitat and restoring habitat. And it just goes on all over the place for all sorts of good reasons. So, yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to point, point out how many people are committed to, you know, either restoring species or preserving species. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and also how much, um, you know, working, um, in the field, this, like I have, it, it gives you an appreciation for how much work goes into, um, recovering a species and, uh, you know, how much of a uphill battle that can be and, and just how, how much goes into it. It's, it's really incredible. I think just understanding what what the what the proper environment should be, or what you know how they use the the how the animals use the space, figuring all that out is is a you know that's the the first part, but it's also the hard part. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, and realizing the the environment that these animals you know existed on and evolved on for millions of years is is very different from the one that exists today. I, I, I don't know how many, can you tell me how many people work on the project? Um, a lot, <laughs> it de- oh, wow. uh, okay. depending on you know, like, like, uh, you know, it's, if you encounter, if you count everyone that all the people that are involved in, in habitat restoration, inclu- you know, including the, the chainsawing and, uh, the restoration of wetlands, the prescribed fire, um, it very quickly adds up, um, but if, uh, as far as the direct to work with the salamanders, um, with the, the frosted flatwood salamanders, there were four of us, including Pearson, who, you know, was the lead on that. Sure. And, um, and, uh, with the articulated, there are 15 or so of us in the lab, I think. I'm not as positive on that, but. Okay. So quite a few. Yeah. But there, there are a lot of people out there that never see the actual animal in the wild. Yeah. But they go out there and have to cut things down and burn things or, or whatever. Right. They definitely, yeah. Okay. Wow. Uh, so you're back You're back at it uh, doing the, the good work. But you also worked on another <laughs> uh, another endangered animal, the hellbender. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, I... Meant to mention, yeah, that was sandwiched between uh, the the flatwood salamanders. <laughs> so I, I just <laughs> finished that work a couple weeks ago. Um, but that's quite a sandwicher. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. All right. So, uh, how many years did you work on the Hellbender project? Uh, just uh, let's see, it was over a year, year and three or four months. Um, okay, I was working for. Purdue University, working for Nick Bergmeier, who you mentioned, I know was a friend and who's nature been on the Nick. show before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good old nature Nick. Yes. Um, yeah, working for Purdue University in the Williams Lab, um, working to to reintroduce and uh, and also evaluate survival of, uh, of hellbenders and their historic um, habitat in the Blue River in Indiana. Yes. So uh, let me do a follow up here. Now, now this, if people are interested in, in that, you know, that hellbenders in Indiana, they can listen to this, uh, this previous episode where we did a live release, um, which was an interesting show to do while you're wading through the water, trying not to drop a recorder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you can listen to that and, and get, uh, get the full effect of that. And Nick did a lot of, a lot of talking about what was going on and that helped fill it in. But, uh, but so you and, uh, after, after the hellbenders were released and they were released in this little, um, 
containment, uh, I would call it a vessel. It was just a, a big rock pile covered with a, a net, completely covered with a big net that had a zippers in it. So you could put the hellbenders in there and then they go into the rock pile and then they sort of acclimate for a few days. And then, then you and Nick hang around on the bank, making sure there's no mischief with the, the net. Mm-hmm. And then you remove the net. And then, then what happens? Do you guys, uh, see, did you guys see any hellbenders in, in the rock pile after that or? Um, yes. Um, so that specific release you guys came to, uh, as you mentioned, what we usually do is camp out on the riverbank next to the cage, you know, within sight. Um, and, uh, we do that mostly because the, the blue river is, it's, a uh, commonly used for recreation. You know, there's a lot of paddlers, a lot of people on the river and uh, we just, you know, just make sure that the cages stay on there and people don't uh, mess with it or, or take it off, not knowing what it is or, or anything like that. And then also right. to, you know, make sure that a river otter doesn't break in or, or something like that. Um, oh, heaven forfend. <laughs> keep the, keep the otters away. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, we, it's been joked about that. It's unfortunate that the river otter was reintroduced before the hellbenders were <laughs> populations were brought back up, oh, yeah. but Surprisingly, I think the raccoons are, are the bigger, bigger predator, but, uh, of hellbenders it's, yeah, it's, it, it's a little bit tough to, to say exactly. Um, cause most of the mortality, um, you would just find a transmitter and a pit tag up on the bank and it's, it's hard to say oh. for sure what got it, but it, I think the, the thinking is it's probably mostly raccoons. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. It, uh, it's it's not good, but it's amazing. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's well. I can transition to it's. It shows what some of the research that Purdue does with the Hellbenders is looking into what increases the survival. You know, how can you um, ensure that the maximum amount of the animals you put back in the environment are going to live? Because obviously, you want that to be as high as possible. Um, right. Now you guys were releasing animals that, yeah, that were a couple years old, right? So they've, yes. they've, you've taken, you've taken them out of the, out of the mortality, uh, the chances for, uh, for being, uh, preyed on, you've taken them out that, out of that whole situation for a couple of years. So. Yeah. Yeah. Similar to the, the flatwood salamanders. It's kind of like a head starting where, yeah, we, the, the survival and captivity is is higher than than that in the wild for for eggs and larvae of hellbenders for sure and um, some percentage of those are used in these research experiments where I'm probably I might be covering a little bit of what Nick talked about in a previous show so sorry about that but um, okay. some of them are conditioned to these different different uh, things. <laughs> So, for example, there's some that were raised in flow in an artificial stream, basically, and um, some that weren't. And, you know, the research that Purdue did showed that the, the ones raised in flow, uh, the survival was, was better than those without, um, which kind of makes sense. Okay. You know, I mean, it's, they were raised in an, a habitat more similar to the blue river. So they were more prepared for it when they, when they were put back. Gotcha. And so, um, yeah, some percentages of the, of the animals they release there have radio transmitters when they're doing a research experiment to look at things like that. Okay. Yeah. So they can follow, follow it up. Yeah. Yeah. You can kind of see, and that's, that's part of what I did there as well. It was, um, we released, animals that were exposed to flow and, and other things. And we were, could compare, you know, those to animals that, that did not uh, experience those, those things. And you can see which, or see how much the survival uh, increases when you, when you expose them to things that they will actually encounter in the river. Right. So there is a correlation. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, the, I think the, I know the, the flow conditioning stuff is published. Um, and I don't remember exactly how much that uh, increased survival, but it it was a, a definite uh, noticeable increase. 
Okay. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift this a little bit now. When we were releasing the the, the Hellbenders and uh, those of us, I would call us witnesses. We weren't, you know, we're not actively engaged or employed by the program, but we graciously got to participate in releasing the actual benders into the little cage. Uh, and while we were doing that, you had, um, an underwater video camera set up right at the, at the, the zipper opening so that you could, uh, get video of us releasing these sound benders. And how, how did that turn out? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's underwater photography and videography is a real, uh, interest of mine. And so, it was really cool to work on the Hellbender project where, you know, I had some opportunities to film Hellbenders underwater and things. And uh, I, I believe, I remember you mentioned to me that you, you released one in front of my camera intentionally. And I think that was the one I was looking at that, that turned out really well. So, so I appreciate that. Oh, good. <laughs> um, You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So um, yeah, it was really cool. And I actually, um, like you mentioned earlier, I have a YouTube channel called Life Underfoot, um, where I I actually collaborate with um, my old uh, boss on the Timber Rattlesnake Project, Andrew Hoffman, and our other former coworker John Buffington, uh, where we we do these um, wildlife YouTube videos focused on conservation. And uh, we did the Flatwood Salamander video, and we are working on a Hellbender video that hopefully should be out this winter. And uh, you'll see probably that, that footage from the release, uh, in that video. Okay. So life underfoot, that's the name of your channel. Yes. Yes. We have, yeah. Life underfoot on YouTube. Uh, we have an Instagram and <laughs> TikTok as well. So if you're interested, okay. uh, yeah, send me there. all the things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Send me, the, send me all the things and I'll get them in the show notes and stuff. So I'm uh, very it. interested in this stuff. Uh, and I, uh, I want to know, you know, do you, nobody said hey uh zach we want you to we want you to film this stuff this is just something this is an added uh it's a thing you're interested in so it's an added uh, element of of the hellbender releases yeah yeah it's well it's it's something i got into on my own and uh i was actually able to kind of incorporate it into my job uh when i was working with the hellbenders so i you know i filmed them and contributed uh video to you know some of their outreach materials and uh I also did some of my own outreach videos on other herp species for, for Purdue extension. And so it was, Oh, okay. I was going to ask you, uh, I thought maybe you, that your videos were used by Purdue and, and for other you know purposes. So, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really neat to be able to, to do that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, getting paid to go out and film herps is, uh, not a bad gig <laughs> as no, part of, you know, no. part of my other duties, of course, but, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you do the underwater thing. Uh, and, uh, and Andrew does some video stuff. Uh, did, did, who, who started that first you or, or him, or was it simultaneously you guys kind of got him into that? We, yeah, we were both kind of getting more into, into the video game. And, uh, then, is I think fall of 2020 Andrew and John kind of reached out to me and asked if we'd be if I'd be interested in collaborating and uh and uh I was and yeah we've been putting out uh YouTube videos since then not not too many okay. super recently but uh we should have that hellbender video and, and some others that are in the works that that should be out somewhat soon okay Cool. Well, I can't wait to see that. And I can't wait to go back and look at your back catalog. And uh, I need to get Andrew on the show sooner or later. Um, yeah, yeah. I've known him, I've known him a long time. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think his, I first met Andrew, he wasn't even driving. I think he was in high school. He wasn't driving yet. And I think his, maybe his dad or, or one of his parents would, would bring him to places. So, <laughs> so I've known him for a bit. And that's <laughs> that's funny because that's kind of how, that's how I met Andrew. Because I, I was in high school and meeting up my parents driving to meet up with him to go out herping and stuff. So that's, that's neat. So the circle continues. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, cool. If I remember right, you all, I, I, I use a, um, in, uh, for my underwater, uh, things, which aren't many, but, uh, I use, uh, an Olympus, uh, Olympus, uh, I can't think of that. TG six or TG 
five or four? TG5. TG5. Olympus TG5, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pretty good underwater camera. And don't don't you use something similar to that? I do, yeah. I use the TG6, which is just the, the next one, the next generation, but it's it's functionally the same camera. Yeah. Um, those things are so much fun. Um, I wish I was better at it. I think I need to spend more time actually underwater. I think it works better if you and the camera are actually underwater. It is the bane of my existence that when I put my camera underwater and I'm not, if I'm not actually in the water that I can't control it <laughs> because uh, yes. the camera has the, the neat functionality of you can use Wi-Fi to, to remote it or to use it remotely. Um, but Wi-Fi does not travel through water. So <laughs> yes, it's, it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. So you can't. Yeah. So I, I, I feel your pain. Um, but it's still fun uh probably the most fun i've had with mine i went to uh down to coila mexico where they have the uh the box turtles oh uh, down there in in the bolsons very neat and uh yeah and so uh, i got to the water's not deep enough for me to completely submerge but i got to use my snorkel and lay on the bottom with my camera pointed at these and I just took stills. I, I took some video, but I like using stills too. So I mm-hmm. just waiting for these box turtles to sort of, you know, move around and, and get some candid shots of them underwater. So that that was probably my my high point. I don't, I, yeah. You know, but it, it taught me that you know you really got to be under the under the water, to, like you say, to control these things properly and make sure you got the shot centered and that kind of thing. Yeah, you either have to have to do that or come up with some creative uh systems so i i've used it to i was trying to film spotted salamanders um underwater in a vernal pool and yeah i was i you know i really wanted to get nice clear video of spotted salamanders swimming around and mating and all that and uh obviously if you wade into the wetland you you kick up the sediment and also you can risk stepping on egg masses and stuff so i yeah so yeah i didn't want to do that and so I actually bought like a little remote controlled boat and uh, had like a wrist strap that I could mount my camera to and suspend my camera from the remote controlled boat and drive that out into the wetland and let it just kind of sit and re- record the salamanders. And the, the, <laughs> <laughs> the cool thing about that too is, you know, they, they very quickly, um, they're not as disturbed by the boat as they are by, you know, a big human walking over so they very quickly would come back out and swim around and swim right in front of the camera so the camera is underwater but it's mounted to the boat correct yep (laughs) and i'm just on shore with a a control (laughs) driving the boat around flipping genius man that's awesome (laughs) yeah it's it's now my my brain is like where i need to get a boat i I, yep if you're if you want to film uh vernal pool amphibians i I highly recommend that method (laughs) i love it i love it man and that gets me excited so that's a pretty cool idea because yeah you can't get in the vernal pool Nobody wants your big butt in the vernal pool, right? Uh, yeah, it's it's just, not easy, and if you, yeah, yeah, it's it's better for the animals if you don't, and so it's yeah, it's, you have to come up yeah. with a way to. If you're listening, folks, don't walk out in the vernal pools either. It's very rarely worth it. I yeah, it's it's and it's not the, yeah, it's just bank. better for everything. You, you're gonna see the salamanders if you just wait and just look in the water. They're gonna come out and you know go at the right times, and it's it's not hard to see them. Yeah, because you, you just can disturb egg, egg masses and and the actual then you can you can disturb um, spermatophore packets. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The males are laying. You can you can mess that whole that whole thing up. It's very it's a very complicated little thing that goes on there where the males mm-hmm. drop the sperm packets and then the females have to find them and pick them up. So yes, man, you don't want to get in the middle of that. Yes. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. I will. What kind of boat? Like a little speedboat. Uh, kind of, yeah, except, uh, I just, you know, I just wanted a cheap one and I didn't care how fast it was. So it was actually like, right. uh, one of these ones where y- you can fit like a, an alligator head on it and it, you're supposed to use it to like prank people or whatever. <laughs> like you could drive like an alligator <laughs> up, uh, next to your friends at the lake or whatever, <laughs> an alligator head. 
<laughs> but I just took the alligator head off and just dismounted the wrist, my camera to the wrist strap and <laughs> just used that. Okay. <laughs> I like this. This story just gets better. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a fun, yeah, that was a fun winter and spring where I was trying to, I was troubleshooting all these things and, you know, what would work best. And, and that's what I came up with. And, and that seemed to do the trick. <laughs> I can, uh, I have a YouTube video with that footage. I can also send you of the, the spotted salamanders and all that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. Please do. Uh, one of the things, um, that, you know, when you're fiddling around, uh, in, you know, and in, in going underwater is like going to another planet, but you, you get a real respect for the people that do, you know, you know, you, you, you watch national geographic or something, uh, where people are getting these spectacular shots underwater and then you realize, there was a lot of work that went into that to get that shot. Yes. So, so much work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, one of my er very first uh, podcast episodes featured Matthew Sullivan, who's uh, yes. quite an accomplished underwater photographer. So Yes. I, I, he was, he was I very inspiring. Work. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. He's, he's done some great things. It's very, yeah. He's great work. Yeah. So gets me all excited about, uh, you know, maybe I should get a wetsuit. Now I need to get a wetsuit and an alligator boat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. And, and, uh, yeah, send me the link so I can make sure everybody gets, uh, can get a look at the work you've done. So. Yeah, um, absolutely. So you're back in Florida. How do you feel about that? It's nice. Um, yeah, I think I, I left the Midwest at uh, just the right time. <laughs> just got my forever summer here. And uh, just today, actually, I was out in the field and uh, there was a gray rat snake that fell from a tree with a flying squirrel that it was constricting and uh, oh, wow. just ate it in front of me. And uh, of course, I got video and photos of that, too. Oh, um, and dude. That was that was very, very cool. And just one of those things where it's like, it's, I know you can experience that in other States, but there's so many, you know, the snakes are dense here. And I feel like you're more likely to see that thing here than, than further North. But that was, it was very cool. Wow. That's amazing. A flying squirrel. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Presumably it was found it in a cavity and, uh, I guess the squirrel fought back and they fell from the tree. Huh? It was a very, that's one of my amazing only the second time I found a, a wild snake eating something, I believe. And, and uh, yeah, it was very neat. I've not seen it often. I've seen it a couple times. Yeah. The combat thing. I, uh, I, I keep thinking one of these days I'll, I'll see it, but so far 50 years, no combat. <laughs> it's, it's tough. I mean, yeah. Even like when we were tracking them, there were, three people out tracking snakes all summer, you know, during the breeding season. And I was the only one to see it for, for 10 or 15 minutes. So it's, it's just one of those things you have to be exactly in the right spot at the right time. Uh -huh. Yeah. Oh, those two X and Y really have to come together on that one. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, man. Awesome. So, uh, you do some herping, uh, in your, in your spare time too, just enjoy, uh, herps in general, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and increasingly getting more into. Sorry, the dog is barking. That's okay. <laughs> um, increasingly getting more into um, just kind of underwater stuff in general. Um, I've gotten more in, into snorkeling. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I snorkeled a lot for work with the Hellbender stuff, and uh, yeah, recently I've been thinking I, I want to snorkel in some of the the bays and try and see stingrays and, and sharks and whatnot, and. Uh, Oh, cool. So, yeah. Well, Florida also has a lot of springs too. Yes. Right? Yeah. The freshwater springs and yes, manatees and all sorts of amazing stuff. So I'm excited to, to explore all that. Okay. Well, I, I want to thank you for, for coming on the show and, and, uh, telling me what you're up to. Um, you know, I think, uh, uh, a lot of folks are, you know, people come on the show and they talk and they wonder if anybody's actually interested in what they do, but people really are interested in, in this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, the, there'll be, uh, I'll get a lot of comments on this. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This, this was a, an absolute blast. All right. Well, uh, we're going to, I'm going to go ahead and sign off the show now, but once again, appreciate you coming on and talking to me. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks.
Hey there, it's me again. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Zach. And while putting this episode together, uh, I went back to YouTube and replayed some of the videos on the Life Underfoot channel. And I got to tell you, they're just excellent. And I'm so impressed with the work that Zach, Andrew Hoffman, and John Buffington have put into these productions. The videography, the narrative, it's just all excellent. And uh, well, and if I left anybody out, uh, my apologies. Uh, so do yourself a favor, folks, and check out the Life Underfoot channel on YouTube. And Underfoot is all one word. And you can find links to some of the videos in the show notes for this episode. Uh, the Flatwood Salamander story is there. The spotted salamander breeding mass that Zach shot from the RC boat is there. And only oh, yeah, on the timber rattlesnake combat video is there as well. Also one on uh, Jefferson salamanders that I really like. So thanks again, Zach, uh, for coming on the show. And thank you, everyone, for listening. That's it for episode 73. I want to thank Zach Trulock for coming on the show and talking with me. And uh, Zach, I wish you and the Flatwood Salamanders all the best going forward. And I guess I'm going to have to be shopping around for a little RC boat to play with. And I want to say thanks once again to all of the So Much Pinkle patrons for supporting the show and keeping it rolling on into the future. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help support the show, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much bingle and so much bingle is all one word you can also make one-time contributions via paypal or venmo just drop me an email to so much bingle at gmail.com for more details and don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much and you can join the so much bingle facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests also please note that i'm on instagram at uh so much bingle and Twitter as well under the same handle, but seeing how Twitter is currently crashing and burning. Uh, I'm also over on Mastodon now, just in case. So you got to stay one step ahead these days. And last but not least, you can reach me directly at, via email at somuchpingle at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.